Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras, Reds edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand recently sat down with Reds president of baseball operations and general manager Dick Williams to talk about life before baseball, the difficulty of trading popular players, and why rebuilding can be a dirty word. Here's Mark. Dick, you began your career as an investment banker on Wall Street. Did you take anything from that career that's helped you in baseball? Well, I think I took a lot of things. Um, you know, I feel real fortunate to have taken a non-traditional path into baseball. It, I really was not um, considering baseball as a career until my mid-30s. And so I was very focused on investment banking, private equity, and as a result, got a exposure to a lot of different businesses and, and the way they did things. And so when I came into baseball at, um, at a later age, I was able to, in my opinion, sort of challenge the status quo, ask a lot of questions. I was able to be naive. And uh, that's, that's how you approach investments a lot of times, is you just ask a lot of questions and you learn about the business model and for me to come in at age 35 with no preconceived notions about how things should be done, I think was a big advantage and was uh, definitely 100% a result of the fact that I that I did something else out of college for over a decade. You also worked on George W. Bush's re-election campaign in 2003-2004. How did that come about? You know, that was really random. I'm not um, a real political uh, person. I'm not very overtly political. Uh, what happened was... I had started a networking group down in Georgia when I lived in Atlanta that uh, involved young professionals from around the state. Not young professionals in the sense of recent college graduates, but we're talking people that were in their 30s that were running businesses. And um, we really learned a lot from each other. And a friend of ours, a friend of our families from Cincinnati, went to D.C. to run Bush's uh, finance operation. And he wanted me to replicate that networking model across the country in a lot of the big cities um, to help recruit um, donors for the campaign. And so I did that and formed events and, and uh, sort of went around during a, a pretty exciting election cycle, if you remember that one. And um, the money that year really increased dramatically and, and the, the pressure on the campaign finance operation increased dramatically. But really for me, it ended up being a great way to meet uh, smart young people around the country. And then after the election, um, the inauguration, everybody started filtering into the administration for jobs. And I said, okay, you know, time for me to go back to 
the real world, it was a great experience, but never really a long-term passion of mine. So what made you decide to pursue a baseball career in your mid-30s? Well, you know, I had a family um, connection to baseball uh, that had always um, made me interested in it, but I'd never seriously considered it for a career, and then circumstances unfolded in such a way that, that it, it became more open to me. But when I was growing up in the 70s, my grandfather and his brother were part of a group that had that had purchased the Reds in the in the late 60s, mostly as passive investors. Although my grandfather was very involved in, in the hiring of Bob Housem, um, who went on to really run those teams uh, through that period. Um, but my grandfather was a passive investor, and then in the late in the early 80s, took over the majority ownership for a couple years and decided that was not something he liked doing. It was uh, around the time of free agency. And uh, Bob Housem, who built those teams in the 70s, had told him, you know, with this free agency stuff, I don't know if this model works for a market like Cincinnati anymore. Ironic that we would later get back involved. But So he got out of the team um, in uh, 84. Um, my father and uncle uh, stayed interested in, in baseball and in the 90s had a chance to join Bill DeWitt in the Cardinals, again, as passive investors. So I was off doing my thing um, in 05. 06 when they had my, my father and uncle and, and Bob Castellini had a chance to, to get involved with the Reds, really at, on, behind Bob's leadership. Um, I helped with that transaction uh, from a financial standpoint. While doing the research, uh, Bob had a son my age who was very interested in going to work on the business side. And over lunch one day, we started to say, hey, you know, this opportunity may never come our way again. So, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about the fact that I did I, I never would have had this opportunity if not um, for my father and uncle and, and their investment uh, in the business. But um, I thought it was very important that if I wanted to learn it, that I, that I pay my dues. So I've spent the last decade um, working for some really smart people in the baseball front office and asking a lot of questions um, and, and hopefully learning a lot of things that I can add. And I'm, I'm real proud of the team we've built. I'm, uh, I've enjoyed my relationship with Walt. He's been uh, instrumental in my development. And we've got a lot of, uh, you know, great team that, that we've pulled together. I'm excited about the future now. But it is a, it is a sometimes it's a long-winded answer to give when you're speaking to college students and they want to know how to get into baseball. I, I can comfortably say, don't try to follow my path. That's right. It'll be very hard to do. <laughs> Did you take to baseball operations right away? Was it something you enjoyed? It was. Um, it was really foreign. You know, I, I, as much as I considered myself a baseball fan, I had no concept of the minor league system and how it worked or the, the amount of rules surrounding transactions at the major league level, you know, the roster management, um, the finance uh, involved with arbitration and long-term contracts. And, it, that takes a long time to sort of get your arms around. Um, I'm, I, I can see why the casual fan would sort of, you know, struggle with some of the more technical aspects of what we do. But I, I did figure out pretty quickly that it was a, a unique industry that I thought would be really, really fun to try to have an impact in because it's so competitive and every year, you know, it's very public and uh, you get to declare winners and losers every year. It, it's... Um, you know, it gets in your blood and it's something you're very interested in. I tell people the best and the worst part of my job is sort of how public it is because when things are going well and you go to the grocery store, everybody wants to be your friend and talk about the Reds and it's an easy conversation starter. Uh, likewise, when you're not doing well, um, 
you better not think you can hide from those conversations, especially someone like me who was born and raised in Cincinnati. So being born and raised in Cincinnati, having your family involved with the Reds for a long time, uh, do you feel like you have a good feel for the pulse of the fan base? For better or worse, I feel that <laughs> pulse. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, can feel, I can sympathize with their uh, love for the team because I grew up rooting for the team. I can sympathize with the fact that everybody, we've got these memories of the big red machine that'll, that'll never go away. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we relish being a blue-collar blue town, a little bit of an underdog when it comes to sports. Um, we're, we're a little bit of a smaller market relative to, to some of the others, and I think people enjoy that, that struggle a little bit. We're, we're fiercely proud of our team, you know, the, the fans of Cincinnati, and so I, I feel a great sense of responsibility to put a team out there that, that people are proud of, um, that, that the individuals represent the city well, uh, win or lose. And so that, I, that does add a little bit of pressure to the, to the mix. What's the biggest challenge of trying to build a team in a small market? Well, um, you know, not having some of the financial resources of, of the bigger market teams makes it difficult. It doesn't make it impossible. You know, we've, we've done it uh, from 2010 to 2013. We had those three playoff appearances. Um, we've seen the Indians do it more recently. We've seen the Rays do it. But I think it'll always be cyclical for the smaller markets just because uh, you do get to um, a period of time where you've, you've got to turn over your roster um, and sort of do it again. Um, the, with, with a small market team, when you're in that rebuilding phase, you tend to uh, feel the cycle a little more dramatically than the big market teams. And by that I mean, tend to be a little more sensitive on the attendance side than some of the big market teams. Um, so we tend to feel it a little bit more in the attendance drop off. Also, when we're in a, re a rebuilding phase, um, one good strategy that's employed by teams is go out and sign a, a, a player to a one-year deal, you know, for an eight, ten, twelve million dollar contract. A good player that can contribute to you for that season, but also if they do contribute, represents a chance to to flip that player and turn them into prospects. And the Cubs did that very well a few years ago. We've had other um, we've had other teams uh, have similar successes and. That's harder for us to, to afford, uh, that strategy. So we have to rely a little more heavily on the draft and being a little more savvy um, in our trades. And then when you start to come out of that rebuild phase, I think the bigger market teams can be a little more aggressive uh, with big dollar contracts. But by new, no means do we think these obstacles are, are insurmountable. Um, we, we feel really good about our investment in the international market last year and in in, in our performance in the draft. And we're starting to do a lot of things uh, off the field that I think will benefit us as well. So we're doing everything we can. You recently said, I don't want to talk about rebuilding anymore. Do you think there's automatically a bad stigma attached to that word? I, I feel like sometimes when you talk to the fans about it, um, they roll their eyes and they say, you're just, here we go again. It means we're going to be bad. And um, I, I'm sorry that they feel that way. I'm sorry there's a negative stigma attached to it. Um, there, there are reasons for that. When you talk about rebuilding, it does mean you're going to take cash out of the major league payroll and probably invest it in other areas that are going to give you a better return on investment for your next window of success. And um, baseball is a little bit of the long game. You know, you watch the NFL and NBA and they draft and those players are, are on the field or on the court. 
um, in a matter of months, whereas our, uh, our minor league system tends to take years to develop um, players. So you have, to, you have to play a little bit of a long game. You have to focus on these cycles. You have to be very aware of when your talent is going to be peaking and, and when that meets your um, financial constraints. So, you know, I, I said that sort of tongue-in-cheek. Um, I, uh, I, I will always be thinking about building the next winner, but I, I hope some of the, some of the tear-down process, some of the painful process of trading away popular players, is some of that's in the rearview mirror, or hopefully the majority of it for now. Every team in the majors at this point has an analytics department, uh, so there isn't that advantage that some teams used to have. Do you think teams right now are looking to find that next big thing, and what do you think that next wave might be? I do. I do think teams. Um, I, I I know my competition. I, I know some of these other GMs, and they're they're really smart. There's some really good guys out there doing what what I'm doing, and we're all uh, in quest of of the next edge. I think the areas of of sports science, um, injury recovery, injury prevention. Uh, fat, you know, fatigue prevention. Um, I think that's a that's a big area. Uh, as an industry, we obviously still haven't solved the the problems related to pitching arms, um, and then with the dollars that are being invested there, uh, there's got to be some progress made at some point. I don't see it um, a huge variance in team to team, which makes me think nobody's probably figured it out for one and two. The problems may be happening. Um, when the players are younger before they get to us. I'm pretty much out of my element, you know, trying to trying to figure figure that out, but I read a lot and I talk to a lot of people and um, I really uh, appreciate the fact that MLB is starting to say, hey, this, this whole youth baseball thing right now, it's a very um, chaotic, disorganized structure. And, you know, maybe maybe we can help bring some more consistency to the way children are brought up in this, this game and, and how their how their bodies are, are treated as they're as they're brought up. And I maybe that maybe that'll make an impact. I sure hope so because, you know, this year for example, to have uh, Homer Bailey and, and Anthony DiSclefani uh, unavailable for the start of the season really, really takes its toll on us. Um, you know, a small market team trying to trying to put some young guys out there in the rotation. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinstein. Analytics have started to make their way to the fans now, and that's not just for baseball front offices anymore. Statcast makes a lot of these numbers widely available. Do you think it's changing the way fans are looking at the game? I do. I, I, I definitely do. Uh, the uh, I think the nice part of the evolution is that um, the broadcasts are taking the data and they're starting to visually present it in a way that the fan. Um, you know, can understand. It's one thing when you talk about a player's war and a fan is like, wait, what's that? And then you try to give them a definition. It's another when they can see um, some of the pitch FX or the stat cast and field FX data um, visually presented on the screen. And um, that's really just started to happen in the last year or so. But but people are, are, are starting to, 
you know, scratch their heads and say, hey, this is pretty cool. And I think making that data accessible to the casual fan is, is, is going to really help us turn the corner. Um, it's, the ironic thing is the data isn't all that threatening. Um, it's just that the casual fan hasn't been presented with it before. And I think the, the way the scouts have reacted to it um, was very telling, you know, because they were, the scouting community as a whole, and I'm generalizing here, was, was fairly resistant to this new um, analytical data. But what I saw over time was that they, they really started to like it, especially because it started to validate things that they'd been saying, but had always said, that, you know, it was always subjective. Hey, this guy's got really good instincts in the outfield. He gets good jumps. He takes good routes. You know, we just had to rely on the scouts' uh, impression of right. how those things work. The ball work. comes harder off his bat, that but, kind of ex thing. Exactly. And now these guys are starting to get numbers, and they're saying, see, I told you right. that guy takes really good routes. You know, now we can prove it. And so the scouts are starting to um, gravitate towards those numbers a little bit more to see if it validates the way they're, they're thinking. And I think the casual fan will start to gravitate towards analytics as well. You mentioned the sports science before. Uh, you created a sports science department within your organization. Things like sleep studies, nutrition, have gotten a lot more attention. Is it difficult to get players to buy into some of this stuff? Um, they have their routines. You know, honestly, uh, that, that will be a challenge. The key is to start it young. When, when they're in the minor leagues, we can pretty much tell them what, you know, <laughs> what to try and what to do. Um, at the major league level, you don't have that, but if they've if they've become accustomed to something or they've they become exposed to something, we, we do the same with sports psychology. It's something they start to incorporate in their routine. It is something they want later. <clears throat> we also have some a bunch of players on our major league team that are very young. Um, we have a lot of players with less than a year or two of service time, so those guys are still trying to make it in the big leagues, and they're they're willing to do new things. Um, and we have some established guys like Joey Votto who to whom nutrition and sleep and all these things are very important. He's, he's a real cerebral, has a real cerebral approach to the game. So I've, I've found very little resistance among our uh, uh, player personnel so far to, to some of the things we've been trying. It's more been um, curiosity that I've been met with. You've traded away a lot of the veterans in the recent years, Johnny Cueto, Todd Frazier, Jay Bruce, Brandon Phillips, Rolls Chapman. You mentioned Joey Votto. He's still here. He's still the face of the franchise. How important is he to this organization, both on and off the field? Very important. I do think when you go through a rebuilding phase, um, you can take the house all the way down to the studs, but but it's important to leave some things standing, in, in my opinion, to provide that sense of continuity. Um, and Joey's consistency in his approach Obviously, his performance on the field, um, his uh, sense of responsibility for the organization make him a really good candidate for that. And I, I, this spring has been very validating um, in terms of his, our decision, you know, in his decision really to stay here and our decision to, to want him here because of the way he's um, helped the, the young players. He is a quiet leader. Uh, but make no mistake about it, nobody has a more profound impact on the performance of our young players like Suarez and Hamilton and the next generation, the Winkers and Shevlers, um, than Joey. Uh, they, they all uh, really look up to him. They, they spend a lot of time with him, and uh, I think they're better players for it. So we feel really good about 
about him. And he's not the only one, you know, having Zach around and Devin Mezzarocco. There are, you know, there are there is a, a holdover group um, from before that, that we think um, represent the team really well. When you took the GM job, you said, quote, I'm in this job to win a world championship. Sounds like something every general manager would say. Is it easier to believe that that's achievable after watching a team like the Royals get to the World Series two years in a row and a, you know, a small market team win one of them uh, than it may have been when you're watching the Yankees and Red Sox and, and other teams like that win? Sure. Um, I, don't forget, 2012, we had it all lined up. We were up 2 nothing on the Giants uh, and came home with three games in our park and just needed to win one. And a few weeks later, we're watching them celebrate a World Series. So I, I very much believe, you know, we were within a, a, you know, a break or two from the baseball gods of, of, of doing some damage that year. So I believe it's very possible. It, you know, there are some days it's, it's harder to see than others. Uh, when you've got the Cubs hitting their stride right now like they do, you know, and the, our division being as, as talented as it has been the last few years, um, you know, it really makes you redouble your efforts. Um, but with the talent we've got coming in our system right now, you know, I feel like we've got as good a chance as anybody over the next couple of years to show dramatic improvement. You're considered one of the new breed of general managers, uh, guys who didn't play the game or didn't go through a scouting history. You, you worked under... Walt Jockety for several years, who's pretty much as old school of a guy as there is. Do you consider your approach now, having worked under Walt, to be a good mix of the two? I, I hope so. Uh, that would be pretty flattering. Um, I do believe that uh, you have to have all the different approaches, you know, in in a front office. Um, you know, obviously Walt worked with John Mozeliak and, and Jeff Lunau, both of whom have different personalities. And, and Walt allowed them to do their thing and, and coexist with a tradition, more traditional scouting organization. And I think we had a lot of that here. If you don't have those different approaches and those different inputs, um, then, then you're really missing something. Um, and I think that's one of the things Walt taught me was to appreciate um, what, the, what the scouts bring to the table. So... It is my job to try to help every, everybody coexist and, and build the organization as best I can. Um, I didn't come from a long baseball background. We talked about that earlier. You know, that, that, that helped me not to come into the job with, with many preconceived notions. But I'm, I'm well aware that you couldn't build a front office with a bunch of clones of me. You know, I'm, I'm very glad to have subject matter experts in amateur scouting, player development, pro scouting that I can rely on. How do you assess the improvement of your farm system since you became general manager? Well, the, the farm system improves over a period of, of time. And, and so for me to say, hey, since I became GM in a year, I've, I've improved the farm system. Um, we had an excellent draft last year. Uh, and But you have to look back over the last few years in terms of the draft and how those players' development is, is proceeding. What I can say is that I'm going to do what I can to invest time and resources into that department to get the most out of those players. And, and just recently, you know, one initiative that I implemented was um, after the season last year, we sent a bunch of players to leadership development, you know, a, a three-day course up at West Point. Um, today, coincidentally, um, there's a, a, a colonel from uh, their leadership development group that's here to work with those players and with me and with our, um, some of our player development staff as a follow-up to that course. 
we made the decision this coming season uh, for the first time in our history to add a fourth coach at every affiliate level. Um, you know, the major league staff's up to eight or nine people. Well, the real development's happening down there in A-ball where they've got three guys trying to manage a roster. So we made that decision. We've invested a lot of new money in nutrition um, in, our, in our minor league organizations, which a lot of teams are doing. But for us this year, we took a quantum leap forward. So I do think there are significant tangible changes since I've gotten involved. Um, you know, also we had a great draft last year, but that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the transition of the GM. We picked high in the draft, and, um, and we didn't have a lot of turnover in that scouting staff. Um, but we're going to grow our amateur scouting staff this year. We're going to invest in pro scouting. We're, we're expanding internationally. So we're doing a lot of things we can to give give our people more resources. Adam Duval saw limited time in the majors in 2014 and 15, then busted out with an all-star season last year. How much of a surprise was that to you, and is there pressure on him to do it again? <laughs> well, we try not to put too much uh, pressure on him, but he uh, he really um, was was a breakout guy last year, and I'd say the thing most surprising was the that he ended up in the Gold Glove conversation out there in left field, you know, because he'd traditionally been a corner infielder. Um, and the opening for us was really in the outfield. We were doing some shuffling. I mean, Suarez comes over as a shortstop, but we have Cozart, so we asked Suarez to, to play third, which he, we've seen incredible improvement there. And, and to put Adam out in left field and, and get the results that we did was, um, you know, it was, it was really nice. I, I think he's, um, I think these first couple years of your career getting in the big leagues are when you see the biggest improvement um, from that first full season to the next. You have that chance right there in front of you. So he came into spring this year knowing that the job was his. Um, so I think we're going to see good things out of Adam. The positional flexibility is something we really value uh, and emphasize. I know that if, if I needed to give Joey a day off, Duval goes over to first. We've got, we've, got left, you know, we've got outfield options on the bench. If Suarez is the one needing a day off, you know, he can go in there and play third. If he's the one that needs a day off, I can rotate around. So that, that adds a lot. And we've been playing Suarez at short, for example, this spring, just so you know, we've got that flexibility. Praz obviously can play second, short, center. Um, so the fact that, that, that Adam did that, I think, is an example for some of the other players in camp. You claimed Dan Straley off waivers a year ago, get a good season, then you flipped him for three prospects uh, this winter. Do you view moves like that? as something a small market team needs to do to take advantage of that situation? I do. Um, I, I do, and I, I thought that was one of the signature moves of my you know, tenure, really, so far. Um, to, to, because relying on, uh, on starting pitching is, is really important uh, to a small market team, and it would have been easy this year to justify keeping Dan in our rotation. Um, great guy. You can, you know, could have probably penciled him in for 200 innings um, this year. But with where we're headed and where our window of success is, you know, I needed to look a little further down the road. And the player that we, the players that we got back, we were really happy with. Um, you know, one in particular, Louis Castillo, is you know we think has a chance to really be a, a frontline impact guy for for years to come. And it just was too good of an opportunity uh, to pass up to, to make that deal. So, you know, I've been asked in the wake of some of the recent injuries, would you go back and do it over again? And, you know, to be honest, if you're, if you're worried about winning a world championship and you're worried about being the best you can be in the next couple of years, then there's no second-guessing that deal for, for me. 
how daunting of a task is it to contend in a division where you have the Cubs, the Cardinals, and the Pirates, and what they've done in recent years, and how do you assess the overall state of the division right now? Yeah, I guess it. If you don't, if you don't find that challenge exciting, then you're in the wrong business. Um, we've we've had a division that's really done well over the last five, ten years. If you look at the numbers of times the wild card has come out of our uh, division, um, so. Both wild cards. Yeah, right. Both wild cards, I should say. It's been, uh, you know, it's been a dogfight, um, but that makes it fun. Uh, we think we're well positioned going going forward. Um, I, uh, I I don't know how to predict the future, but I know I feel good about our guys coming up. Thank you. Love to see you tonight. Love your time. Yeah, Mark. Enjoyed it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.